Welcome to the podcast for Healing Neurology, where we talk about everything that can help heal your neurology, which is really everything from food, lifestyle, and medicine to nature, culture, and politics. There's no topic too big or too small. I'm Jillian Ehrlich, family nurse practitioner certified in Ayurveda and functional medicine. And we have a really special guest today, Dr. Shay Dada. She is a sports neurotrauma and headache specialist neurologist with one purpose in mind, to help people heal from impact of brain disorders. As a physician wellness ambassador, Dr. Dada empowers healthcare professionals to tackle burnout through shifting conversations in medicine based on evidence-based research. As a first-generation South Asian American who experienced her own burnout during residency, she's focused on helping physicians reclaim the balance, purpose, and passion in their lives. She was the 2019 American College of Graduate Medical Education, ACGME, Back to Bedside Proposal Honoree, and led the first resident delegation to the ACGME National Meeting to propose burnout alleviation through technology-led patient engagement tools. She draws on her clinical and personal experience to deliver workshops on stress management and other burnout prevention tools in medical school and residency programs. Dr. Dada learned the application of Ayurvedic and homeopathic and natural healing in India. Importantly for modern healthcare, she is adept at bridging the gap between allopathic and integrative medicine to offer a more holistic approach to health and healing. And since entering medical school, she's pursued an integrative and wellness approach to medicine in order to offer patients informed treatments and mind-body healing protocols that will guide them towards optimal health. Dr. Dada did her neurology residency at Hackensack University in New Jersey. She was the inaugural sports neurotrauma fellow at the University of Florida under the tutelage of renowned concussion and brain injury experts. Dr. Dada is currently the director of concussion and neurocognition at New York University Langone. She is an associate professor in the Department of Neurology and at the NYU Long Island School of Medicine and the Physician Wellness Committee. She is the current elected vice chair of the American Academy of Neurology Sports Neurotrauma Section. She's presented at several national society meetings and gotten numerous awards for her research in brain trauma, including the ACGME, Southern Headache Society, American Headache Society, Sports Neurology Conference, Learn Skin Microbiome Summit, and European Neurocritical Care Society. Her research interests include the gut-brain access and the brain lymphatics network, and you can find her at NYU Langone on Long Island. Whew, God, you are cool. <laughs> this is going to be great. So welcome. We're really, really happy to have you. Thank you so much. That is uh, quite a mouthful. Sometimes it doesn't even seem like I've done all those things, but I'm actually very <laughs> excited to be here uh, because we have some similar things that we're interested in, in terms of helping patients. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we do, we see a lot of TBI or traumatic brain injury in our practice. And we talk about how sometimes brain injuries are physical, like you bump your head, you fall or get hit by a car, whatever it is. And then sometimes we've got me metabolic TBIs. So there's lots of ways that your brain can get injured. And as we're starting this, could we start with kind of talking a little bit just briefly about the anatomy and physiology? Like, where are we in the body when we talk about brain injuries? What does that really mean? We know we have a sense of like what the brain is, but could you tell us like what's in there and what's related when we talk about uh, traumatic brain injury? Sure. Actually, that's a great um, jumping off point, right? Everyone always hears about the brain, the spinal cord, and the, the CNS, PNS. So let's talk. start with the central nervous system, which, which is called the CNS, right? It's mm -hmm. actually composed of the brain, which is basically the command center of the whole body, and then the spinal cord, um, which is this, this is the central part, right? It also contains relay neurons, which are interneurons in between itself, because it this is the way that we communicate from the CNS, let's say, even to the PNS, which is the peripheral nervous system. It's composed of cranial nerves, spinal nerves. So cranial nerves are actually inside the cranium or in the brain, spinal nerves in the spine, and peripheral nerves that go from the spinal cord to our extremities or our organs to help us feel pain or give some type of signal that, you know, something needs to be done now, okay, or senses danger or releases certain neurotransmitters in order for a certain execution um, of an activity or um, thing to actually happen, okay? This so within the peripheral nervous system, we have sensory neurons and then we have motor. Sensory, just like what it sounds like, it's like gives us all, all our senses. Motor is what is for our active moving, right? Our, our arms um, of our tongue, our muscles, um, and that's what motor neurons do. So that's a gross oversimplification. And when we're talking about 
more the nerves in the CNS that are related or more active if we think about traumatic brain injury. I'll get to that in a second as well. Well, let's talk about one type of cell, the glial cell, right? It's called microglia. They're located all throughout the brain and spinal cord. They have, they're about 10 to 15% of all cells found inside the brain. Mm. And basically they are macrophages because macrophages, what they do are they are basically like scavengers of waste and try to clear away um, the things that don't belong um, somewhere. They act as first and main form of active immune defense in the CNS. And we want to keep in mind the immune system when we're talking about traumatic brain injury. We'll get to why uh, in a second as well. Then we have astrocytes. They're the most numerous cell type in the CNS, and they perform a variety of tasks, right? They guide the axons, meaning like the nerve terminals and the the body of the nerves and the synapses where there's like the neurotransmitters that get secreted to control the blood-brain barrier and blood flow within the blood uh, and and back up uh, within the brain. All right. So that's where we are. That's kind of locating us in the body. Okay. So what happens, like what's the anatomy and the physiology, what's going on when we have a traumatic brain injury, what's happening in there? Right. So there is um, something. So basically I just want to clarify, right? There's TBI and then there's MTBI. MTBI is mild traumatic brain injury. And then there's traumatic brain injury, but sometimes they're interchangeable. Mm-hmm. Basically, MTBI, when you have a mild injury, these are the ones that are called concussions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what happens is after you may get a head hit or your brain or spinal cord is by struck by something or your body strikes something. And most of the time you lose consciousness for less than 30 seconds to one minute with a mild traumatic brain injury. And with a traumatic brain injury, you will have prolonged loss of consciousness and even structural bleed within the brain. And it basically occurs when there's a sudden trauma or head injury disrupting the function of the brain. And most of the time you'll go, you'll get checked out. They will, let's say, if your symptoms are severe enough and they feel that your exam warranted in the ER, they will do a CAT scan or, or maybe they'll do an MRI or they'll do a CT of the neck, right? If you've been involved in a motor vehicle accident. And most of the time, about 90% of the time, they're normal, right? But at the same time, even though that's normal, within a day or right away, people are having trouble with memory and reasoning. They're having strange um, sensations of touch, taste, and smell at times. Uh, they'll have difficulty with language processing and speaking, um, aphasia at times, depression, anxiety, personality changes, aggression, social inappropriateness, or they'll just like have odd sort of reactions to things that, you know, they were normally okay watching, like horror movies or really sad movies. And basically, there's about 1.7 million of the people in the US who sustain traumatic brain injuries annually. And it's kind of sad, you know, there and the causes are like slips and falls, like vehicle collisions, domestic violence, um, Mm -hmm. sports injuries, obviously. So Basically, we also don't want to forget the military, right? We also have a big military population that gets a lot of traumatic brain injuries. So there's many ways you can get traumatic brain injuries. And just to your point about what a metabolic brain injury could be, that could be also because you have exposure to some kind of chemical over time that's affecting the blood-brain barrier over time and can give you similar symptoms as what we just discussed what is happening inside the brain when you have a concussion or a traumatic brain injury? What happens? Right. So when you first have that hit to the head and one of the most common is a contra-coup injury, which is French for basically when your brain kind of jiggles, hits the inside of your skull and then hits the back again. Mm-hmm. Although there's nothing on the scans, um, at a cellular level, you have disruption of the sodium potassium ATPase pump that it's sort of like the what makes the, the cell function correctly. Or you can even have micro hemorrhages as a result. Like there's like tiny tears in the neurons, um, almost like a bruise. Like if you bang your arm uh, against something, you'll have a small bruise. Mm-hmm. But like really you can feel it and it's uncomfortable and you have the symptoms, but it's not really such a huge injury that's going to cause like a lot of bleeding outwardly. But it's a real bruise, right? You feel it, it's sore. Mm-hmm. Um, and also on the microscopic level in the brain, the arterial blood supply will get disrupted. You will have tissue metabolism that'll slow down in the injured tissue. 
You can have like, you know, uh, change metabolic demand, meaning at that point, your brain needs more glucose, more rest, certain things to support it because the oxygen basically supply or the exchange is not happening at the same level before. Yeah. So, you know, the blood oxygenation system also changes. Uh, There's change blood flow. And as I said, the microhemorrhages sometimes can be picked up on very sensitive MRIs or even the metabolism of the brain. If you do, we do fMRI, functional MRIs can be uh, seen that the brain like glucose metabolism is different you know, uh, after an injury. Can you talk a little bit about the glymphatic system and what that does in relation to uh, TBI? I, I love the fact that we now have have a name for it, right? Uh-huh. So before, there used to be the idea that there's no lymphatic system in the brain. And as you know, in the body, what the lymphatic system does is drain all of our waste, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the primary way waste is kind of like drained away from our tissues, um, our organs. And if lymph nodes swell, then most of the time we're a little bit scared, right? Because um, they're not able to properly drain. The body's overwhelmed. You know, we think about cancer or infection. We try to get to the root cause and we do lymph node biopsies and further tests at that point. We have found out that a similar lymphatic system exists in the brain. It's called the glymphatic system. It's part of what we now have called the gut-brain access. Mm-hmm. So before we thought, oh, yeah, the brain and the spinal cord is somewhat independent of the body. I mean, we, we don't, didn't really believe that, but we didn't have any way to prove otherwise. But basically by now doing studies and rat brains and different models and putting, um, you know, them through like injecting things that will cross the blood brain barrier and then tracking it through like radio labeled microbes and stuff. We have seen that it's actually crossing through from the brain into the stomach pretty readily. And especially after an injury, right? So the gut brain access at that point um, gets disrupted. So just to talk briefly about how the gut and the brain are connected, your gut contains about 500 million neurons, which are connected to your brain through nerves in your nervous system. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest nerves is called the vagus nerve. It connects your gut and the brain. It sends a signal in both directions. So for example, in animal studies, the stress can inhibit the signals sent through the vagus nerve and also causes GI problems, right? So how many of us, right? We have like a big presentation or some people have like exam anxiety or right before like a big meeting or a date, like your stomach starts acting up. Like you'll be like, okay, I won't eat too much right before this big thing because like I have a sensitive stomach, right? Mm -hmm. This kind of proves to us that, yeah, like, you know, you're cognitively having stress and then your stomach is affected right away. Mm-hmm. It shows that the vagus nerve is likely very important in the brain gut access and its role on stress. Yeah, your gut and brain are also connected through chemicals called neurotransmitters, right? So a neurotransmitter, we all know about serotonin, which is the target of a lot of the antidepressants, it contributes to our feelings of happiness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and these many of these neurotransmitters are actually produced in your gut by trillions of microbes living there. So when the serotonin is produced in the gut, um, they also produce something called gamma, which controls our fear, fear response and stress as well. It's a calming chemical or neurotransmitter, which mm-hmm. is what anti-anxiety medicines try to mimic. And so when we have a traumatic brain injury and all of these connections are disrupted, then it sounds like the signaling that could happen before, the, it's like the roads have changed in the town and you kind of can't get to your destination like you used to. That right? Yeah, we are finding out more and more. Um, not saying that we have it all figured out, but basically, they have done a lot of studies on certain strains of even probiotics that have been given to people over time that actually affects anxiety, um, affects what will affect mood, will affect impulsiveness, or they found disruptions in the gut brain bacteria of people with mental illness like bipolar disorder or um, schizophrenia showing that there's actually different flora living there, their gut microbiomes are different than someone who doesn't live with those, you know, those uh, mood disorders. Um, That's so interesting. I think they're calling them psychobiotics. Exactly. Um, And you can buy them now, like in little bottles, you know, a little bottle of psychobiotics. Yeah, there are so many out there now. Um, We can talk a little bit about the strains in a minute. But in general, um, we're trying to 
we're figuring it out now that if there's an unhappy gut, there's an unhappy brain. Mm. Um, Basically what happens is if you have impaired absorption of important nutrients for your brain health, um, it can happen if your gut is inflamed, which can then translate to brain inflammation. So a lot of times we're finding out that, you know, anytime that the gut is inflamed, like uh, for instance, people, this will change the cytokine and peptide secretions, which can lead to dysregulation in the brain. So cytokines are inflammatory neurotransmitters, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That basically we don't want inflammation to be high anywhere in the body. That's where the problems basically uh, start. Mm -hmm. You can also reduce serotonin synthesis. This could lead to depression and low moods. Also inadequate melatonin production from serotonin imbalances can cause insomnia, right? Mm melatonin actually regulates your circadian rhythm, right? Mm. Also, if you have gut bacteria overgrowth, now we're talking about good bacteria, but you have bad bacteria overgrowth after like maybe having, um, you know, not a balanced diet or Mm -hmm. um, not uh, taking too many antibiotics at one time or being on certain prescription meds so that you can have something called dysbiosis um, and that can lead to anxiety and feelings of fear as well. It's kind of, I just want to take a quick pause and say how awesome it is that very quickly you as a neurologist have gone to like the gut, the diet, the digestion, like it's just awesome. <laughs> oh, thank you. I mean, I, I just really feel that a lot of times as neurologists, we give a lot of bad news, but we're not really able to explain things to people. Yeah. And I always like to try to empower my patients with as much information about the underlying cause of why something happens. Yeah, I can't, I can't, but we are finding out more about immune signaling and the brain. And that's like the best way for us to kind of empower them to do better with their lifestyle choices. So what are some of the names of these, these psychobiotics? Yeah. So psychobiotics, like you said, they're probiotics and they have potential therapeutic benefits for basically helping our gain uh, brain gut connection. So mm-hmm. the probiotic strain, one of them that's been studied and proven, we all know L. acidophilus, right? That's like the number one that's always on every yogurt bottle. Basically, this one helps to reduce cholesterol and support nutrient absorption. Uh-huh. There's one called B. longum. It may reduce depression and anxiety. It helps people with inflammatory bowel disease as well. Mm. The one is called B. bifidum. It helps generate vitamins like vitamin K and B12, which also influence mood. There's B infantis. It caused increased relaxation in the rat model, but also helps with treating irritable bowel syndrome. As we referenced before, we want to cut down on inflammation in the gut so that it doesn't cross over to the brain. Then there's L rotary. Um, It's it's, uh, known to have an anti-pain effect and it can help increase basically excitability or make you like a little more alert. Plantarum, uh, it significantly increased serotonin and dopamine in mice and it reduced anxious behavior when they were in a maze. Mm-hmm. Um, and then last but not least, it's L-Helveticus. Rats administered with the L-Helveticus showed decline in anxiety scores. So there are some formulations on the market that actually have, you know, a mixture of these. Um, There was a study in Frontiers of Neuroscience that showed people with Alzheimer's who took probiotics, like a mixture of L-acidophilus, KC, bifidum, and fermentum, um, experienced positive effects on cognitive functions like learning power and memory. Okay, so cool. Okay, so already we're getting a, a little into treatment possibilities. If we back up one step, um, some of your research interest specifically is about kind of the progression of TBI and some of the what we call sequelae, so things that are possible afterwards. What are the different directions that a TBI can kind of progress into? What are we worried about? What happens? What do we want to make sure that we can try and avoid with treatments if we can? And then after this section, we'll go a little bit more into treatments. What can happen from a TBI long term? Yeah, absolutely. Traumatic brain injury, I find it that no two people are ever the same. There are everyone's like a fingerprint or a snowflake, right? Mm-hmm. One thing we have to always, I as clinicians, keep in mind is what was their functional status prior to this happening? Were, were they a person who used to always get migraines already? Did they have poor diet? Did they have low cognitive reserve? Did they have anxiety disorders already? They have a lot of depression and stress in their life? Did they not sleep already? 
chances are if there were a lot of issues affecting their brain health already, um, they are going to be have a longer like path to recovery. Okay. Mm-hmm. And when they first get a traumatic brain injury, it could be anything from, oh, I'm just having a little more anxiety to, oh my God, I can't focus. Light bothers me. Sound bothers me. I'm ringing in my ears. I'm imbalanced. I'm depressed. So it really depends that I've seen people like fall off horses and get trampled and get a bleed and have a cranium and come to me for a follow-up. And they're like, yeah, I have mild headaches, but I think I'll be okay to, oh, they just got, you know, hit, like walked into a wall or walked into the, the top of the basement stairs. And basically they're just so not able to focus despite all the tests coming back. Mm. So one thing we can keep in mind is that they may not be kind of making it up if even if the injury has appeared mild, that they may still have real and severe symptoms. Oh, absolutely. And it takes someone sort of specially trained to kind of um, go through. And we actually have the ability to do a lot of in-office testing as well as sideline testing now, uh, further neuropsychological testing to find out the domains, exact domains that people need help in. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for me, I, luckily enough, I went to a specialty fellowship training where we can basically triage them and see, and it becomes sort of like a gut reaction about how I can best support them in the acute phase and what they might need in order to get them over that hump. Mm-hmm. That might mean a mixture of vitamins, as well as making sure that they are really strict with the lifestyle modifications, like lights out at a certain time, no screen time before going to bed uh, and actively treating their migraines with a combination of prescriptions, pharmaceuticals as well. And that could be for a short while, or they might just progress to having post-traumatic migraines. Uh, most of the time, that's not the case. Most people recover within six months. At the, mm-hmm. at the- Let's talk about testing and evaluation. Someone comes to you and says, I, I have a head injury. What do you do? How do you evaluate them? Yeah. So hopefully they are in the acute phase, right? They've just had it within the month. It's harder for me when they come to me after they've been basically like 10 years out or something that's tougher, right? Um, The sooner they get to you, the better it is. Most of the time they've come through the ER and they've already determined that there's no bleed. We can start there or no structural like disc injury or something. Mm-hmm. So the assessment initially is basically for me to do a full neurologic exam and see where the deficits lie. Are they getting triggered with their symptoms with simple eye movements or balance exercises that we do? Um, we also do a full symptom profile, you know, a concussion severity scale to see where they rate, to see how severe their symptoms are. Um, and using that as a benchmark to see how they progress um, with treatment protocols is the best thing to do. So in the very initial state, it would really depend, right, on how severe they are. If they say, yeah, I'm having some sensitivity to light and sound and my headaches, I've only had like three headaches in this whole month and I'm okay. So I'd be like, okay, let's start with the right now, um, you know, the, these lifestyle modifications, you need to increase your water intake, you need to go to sleep earlier. Oh, then like I'm having trouble sleeping. So usually I'll be like, okay, let's start you on melatonin, you know, mm-hmm. and um, it's okay to use like uh, mild anti-inflammatories for headaches because they don't seem that bad, but you seem to have some misalignment on your eyes. So I will send you to vision there. So then if anybody has vestibular impairment or ocular impairment on our studies, which test convergence and balance and all that other stuff, um, like uh, then we have specialty therapy services that we can send people to occupational therapy, even speech language therapy, if their speech is affected. Um, and then if they're really suffering with memory loss, even after a three month, um, you know, intervention, then I'll send them to neuropsychology for testing and, and support. And, you know, we also have memory occupational therapy um, to support them and kind of continue out our prescription therapy support for migraines if they, if they have that as well. My bottom line is like, if you let the disruption at the cellular level continue, meaning in form of headaches or, or dizziness or nausea and not treat it in the short term, it just prolongs the recovery. What are some of the integrative treatments that you use over time? Yeah, so that is actually, there's a lot of things I can do and cannot do at like, a place that we have to follow a lot of like, you know, evidence based guidelines. So the evidence based uh, things that have been uh, proven to help you after 
traumatic brain injury are omega-3 fatty acids, right? Up to two grams a day, because they're shown that these fats are already found in high quantity in the human brain. It, it basically, it's shown that these nutrients support you after traumatic brain injury to like lessen your symptoms. Mm-hmm. Another one that's a mineral that's really good for brain health or brain dysregulation is magnesium. We work them up slowly. We don't have want them to have the milk of magnesia effect, um, <laughs> which helps them with anxiety, sleep, as well as the feeling of um, calmness, you know, after a traumatic brain injury. Um, and then the basic support with like, if you're already not eating on a balanced diet, like Mediterranean diet, getting, you might just need a little more sleep, but I don't want you to cocoon yourself. Um, we want you to still get exercise, lessen your stress. And really, again, I want to emphasize for everyone, it's different, right? I work in a very type A sort of uh, environment in New York, right? So everyone's very go-getter. They're like, oh, I can't take off work for three months. You must be out of your mind. You know, I'm like, well, you either choose to work very little right now and not prolong your recovery, or, you know, you can see how it goes and go back when you feel okay, but I think you'll prolong your recovery. And that's kind of what ends up happening until, you know, they, they rub up their symptoms again, just because they don't take the proper rest and the medications or vitamins prescribed. And we kind of just go sort of seesaw a little until they're okay, fine. I give up. Like you were right. You know, <laughs> so, uh-huh. it's a little of the stubbornness too, and not kind of believing because it's a very conceptual thing. It's not something I can show them on an MRI. Like, look, you have a bleed here. You need to calm down. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. More of a feeling and symptoms and things that are just very like, why is this happening to me? Another patient, um, you know, like, uh, came to me, she had a stack of papers like this pretty high, um, and wanted to go through every single test and thing that were done. And I, and I, I took all the most important, uh, pieces of the information. And I said, look, we only have an hour for the first visit. I can't possibly go through all this stuff. We need to just focus on, you know, what your physical exam says, why you're not healing and move forward from there. And at the end, I made a recommendation that, look, her underlying anxiety itself was untreated. And her depression was never properly addressed. And as a result, she was really making herself kind of sick with worry, Mm -hmm. on top of all her other symptoms. And I don't think she really liked that. She didn't think that that I knew what I was talking about. But I think she gave us some thought, um, got actually on, you know, some mood supporting like supplements first, and then decided to go on an antidepressant and she, you know, engaged in the therapy and got better, like rapidly within two months, as opposed to she was going from doctor to doctor for two years. Wow. Right. So that really speaks to your like N of one that every every patient is an individual that needs to be treated for their individual constitution for where they are in their life for what is the particular medical impediment for their health. And how do you how do we use all of these tools to get a person from A to Z? Right. And we really want to, you know, my major goal would be, I wish I could just have a crystal ball or a magic wand and say, Hey, you're just going to take these probiotics and you're not going to need anything else. Right. Maybe we're in a less stressful society that would keep us out of work for six months without asking us any questions. Right. Mm-hmm. But people have to get back to their lives Yeah. and you have to get them functional in order to take on all the responsibilities we have. That's our yeah. primary goal. And so what are your thoughts about exercise? Because, you know, often people with head injuries will have nausea or vomiting after their concussion. And so if they're capable of exercise, meaning like, you know, it's not like they have a bleed and they've got a shunt in and they're inpatient, but like if they've had kind of this, um, I'm doing air quotes around like unseeable concussion and they're getting uh, nausea and vomiting or, or feeling nauseous with exercise, should they keep moving or should they stop moving? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, if in the acute phase, it hasn't been that long, I always just say, just start with, first of all, don't sit in front of a computer for long periods of time, give mm-hmm. yourself, you know, 10 minutes or 20 minutes on and then 20 minutes off, get blue light glasses and get as much fresh air as possible. Mm-hmm. And just do just walk. Mm-hmm. Even if it's just walking, like do the bare minimum until you can graduate. And then that's a protocol that our physical therapist will take them through is getting them balanced. Again, the nausea a lot of times comes from the imbalance of the eyes and the brain Mm -hmm. signal, um, like the signal between the ear and the eyes are all 
sort of messed up and just getting them exposed to those triggers again and balancing them out again, in addition to making sure they're getting fresh oxygen and, and doing as much as they can without triggering themselves. Mm-hmm. Like, should they be working their brains or should they be doing brain rest? Because for a long time, it was recommended to like, don't think about anything challenging, don't do anything hard. But is that still the thinking? So that has fallen out of favor with all of our new research. Basically, at in, in the beginning, for the first week, we say, take it easy, cognitive rest, meaning because we're in front of the computer all the time, and reading small letters, even books and stuff will give people headaches. It's fine to do that for the first week, but we try to get you back into society as soon as possible. You know, that does not mean that you kind of do nothing forever and maybe like the first few days, but like then you kind of like graduate there, you know, slowly. So then the therapies and the supplements, and then there should be progress. Can you talk to us about a few stories of patients? like who have been difficult to progress? Like, what do you do when it's like people don't seem like they're getting better? Yeah, actually, they're, the good thing is that, you know, we have a team of doctors, right? So mm-hmm. usually it has to be a very like collaborative effort between a whole bunch of specialists. Mm-hmm. But now let's say somebody is six months out, they're still not getting better. And this is, there are a lot of patients like that. One patient in particular, a young male, um, finds that he was just getting more aggressive and tired and everything makes him dizzy and nauseous. Every medicine was making him constipated, every vitamin he was having side effects to. So it's just at that point, I kind of dug a little deeper and sent him, I did some minor workup and sent him for an endocrine um, workup. So, you know, your HPA axis, your brain, your pituitary system is there. If you have a brain injury that can be knocked out and even small uh, disruptions in testosterone or estrogen or this type of stuff can like hinder your progress. So once I got him to an endocrinologist and they started their workup and treatment uh, and balancing a few things, some of the things that I was initially doing started clicking. So there are a lot of moving parts, obviously getting them into psychotherapy to regulate mood um, as well as psychiatry. I mean, it's like, I end up doing a lot of psych work because it's just so hard to get into our psychiatry colleagues. Um, But we know that, you know, the same receptors that are disrupted basically in the brain are disrupted in the gut and there's leak, there's leakiness. And it uh, basically it, it can throw off everything and you might just need that minor support before you get over the hump. So, you know, so neuroendocrinology is another, uh, big thing. Um, also, you know, getting them into the right therapy, right? Vision, ocular, vestibular. There, And then, uh, you know, if the conventional measures completely don't, this is when we really need to call on our, you know, evidence-based functional medicine type physicians, like, you know, um, or practitioners of Ayurveda that know about basic things that may be kind of dysregulated, the heat, the vatas, the doshas, Right acupuncture, um, biofeedback, Mm -hmm. there has been some research done on, you know, glutamine IV infusions, as well as antioxidant therapy. So craniosacral therapy, all those things, I think, um, then I'm like, you know, you just need to now go for more of the um, holistic sort of traditional things to Mm -hmm. see, you know, what you can tolerate outside of here. And then it really just takes them longer to get over it. But, you know, then I'll see them back. And sometimes it's just that they have to reset themselves to a new normal because they never get back to me. We've had in our practice doing, we've used a lot of Ayurveda for TBI, um, especially long-term TBI, you know, people who have struggled for years. And one of the things we find is that the body always feels overwhelmed. It can never quite catch up with life. And so Ayurveda with Abhyanga and Shiradhara with oil massage and the warm stream of oil on the forehead. Sometimes that's a little too much early on. It's a little too activating, but often longer term that finally gives the body like the deep rest that it needs. So it can disengage from the external world and really do that internal reorganization. I think of it as like defragmenting the computer. We had a patient yesterday actually who came or, you know, this last week who came in with TBI, who's been doing um, Ayurveda and said it has, you know, over these last eight months has been really helpful for her progress. So yeah, Yeah. we've been pleased with that. I'm totally in agreement, you know, 
that because it progresses at a slower pace and then traditional medical models, I feel, and it supports the deficiencies in, in the patient that may be there as opposed to just trying to treat the symptom. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, so there have been a lot of functional medicine, traumatic brain injury case studies. There's not been a multi-center study. This is why people are afraid to use these things like as yeah. common case. But with severe head injuries, including traumatic brain injury, there's a case study that was like published in medical acupuncture, like functional approach to uh, traumatic brain injury in like 2017. And one case study, basically, the it was a teenager involved in motor vehicle accident and with a poor GCS, you know, but they used um, EPA, which is, you know, uh, EPA DHA is part of omega-3. And they use like very high doses, like uh, 19,000 milligrams um, mm-hmm. fatty acids via his peg tube um, and high vitamin D. And then basically they, he was in the ICU for like four months with the high fatty acids and vitamin D. But after the stabilization, initial stabilization, they saw improvement. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he still experienced speech and balance issues, but his improvement was faster than other people that would have had those severe injuries. That low GCS, that Glasgow coma scale is the one you're talking about, which goes from kind of, you know, yeah. zero, one, two, three, which is coma up to 15, which is alert and oriented. So. Right. right, exactly. And there are also some, so in addition to the fatty acids, there's glutamine um, that's used. Mm. I'm sure you know about that for gut health. It's very mm-hmm. healing for um, uh, inflammatory bowel diseases. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's research on progesterone um, able to be helped to help um, Interesting. female patients, um, especially. Mm-hmm. And when they were treating this patient, um, I, and I, it doesn't tell me so much about why they actually chose progesterone for this patient. Did they test it and it was low? Probably not. Mm-hmm. But it has more to do with its glial cell and inflammatory cytokine type, like stabilizing effects, you know, Interesting. Use vitamin D, progesterone, fatty acids, glutamine, and she basically stopped doing her like deserberate posturing, which is like basically shows that cortically you're very, very damaged. Yeah. Wow. With supplement, little old supplements, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. old vitamins. That's fantastic. I think there's that there's hyperbaric oxygen treatments that are used, you know, a lot of times along with post-concussion syndrome, we have a lot of PTSD. So a lot of times you, you know, I will be able to treat them with other things that are uh, used for PTSD. I try to stay away from benzos as much as possible because of the addiction potential. Yeah. Like, you know, um, you want to make sure your good fats are up like walnuts, you know, omega threes and avocado Mm -hmm. and things like that. So because our brain is mostly fat, you want a diet that supports the brain if possible. Like Definitely don't do a low-fat diet after a traumatic brain injury. <laughs> do a good uh-huh. fat diet. Do you make recommendations in terms of like some of the t- traditionally thought of as more inflammatory foods like nightshades or um, meat or dairy? Do you have recommendations based on those? You know what? I try to make it very simple because I think this, what you're saying about the nightshades, like tomato and all that stuff is very and then even lentils, I think, you know, with lectins and things like that just really gets into too much, too advanced for, for a lot of my patients. Okay. Yeah. If they do ask, then I will. But what I g- generally say, just to make it as simple as possible, is like follow a Mediterranean diet yeah. as much as possible, fruits and vegetables, red wine, and they'll always smile, you know, um, <laughs> olive oil. <laughs> yeah. and, and in general, I'll just tell them like things like, like bread or inflammatory, you know, like as much as possible, like if we can get those out as much as possible, um, like like processed foods, like gummy bears. (laughs) Right, right. And just seeing how you feel after you eat something. So that's the best way to do it. Instead of following a fancy diet and, you know, going to Whole Foods and spending $200. And then you're like, what do I do with all this? Because I don't know what to make. (laughs) Yes. When you get a vegetable from a place you don't know and you don't know how to cook it and you're just looking at it going, how do I cut it? What parts do I eat? <laughs> it's a big mystery. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's loop back around a little bit to now that we've talked about all this stuff, those microglia and those astrocytes, just in light of kind of what we've talked about, can we revisit 
Like what do those cells do and how do we impact them with our treatments? Yeah. So you have to think that they are kind of like the brain scavengers or the the brain sort of soldiers and trying to make sure that if there's a disruption, it's going to protect you. But what ends up happening in a lot of immune related things, because, you know, after a traumatic injury, like you have autoimmune or immune like activation, you know, of your brain and your gut, they hyperreact. They're like, oh my God, I'm here. I'm here for you. And they just overreact and cause a lot of inflammation. And we have to get involved from the treatment aspect just to basically stabilize these cells, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So if you want to talk about like the central nervous system, we have the brain immune cells, microglia, as well as astrocytes, they get activated after an injury. And then these micro-derived neuroactive molecules and neural endocrine pathways then um, talk to the gut, right? And then the gut microbiota committee or uh, communities will like increase their production, but they can only do that if you give them the proper foods, right? Mm -hmm. Probiotics or prebiotics. We've talked, um, you know, recently more in the news about basically yogurt and, you know, bananas and fruits and vegetables being prebiotics or certain fiber being prebiotics and making the good bacteria. And then these immune derived molecules then allow these cellular functions to start repairing themselves, right? You have the gut immune cells, like the T cells and innate immune responses basically go back to the brain and go, okay, here it is. Here are the healing cells. We're going to try to calm this inflammation down and this leakiness down, but Mm -hmm. definitely there's still a dysfunction. This is why everyone's feeling so crappy, I guess, about lack of a better word. So we have really covered the gamut today. We've talked about the central nervous system, the different parts, the different cells, the different relationships. We've talked about how the central nervous system communicates with the rest of the body, especially the gut and how the guts can really seriously impact how the brain is doing in terms of mood and structure, function and and inflammation patterns and levels. And then we talked about traumatic brain injury, both mild MTBI and traumatic brain injury that you know, the first thing, of course, the first assessment that is required is, is there a bleed in the brain? Because that's a whole medical emergency that if you're listening to this podcast and you're wondering if you have a brain bleed, that's, you know, you got to go in, you got to go in and get imaging. Um, But once we've ruled that out or addressed that, then we're really looking at the months afterwards, really the acute period, the things that we can do for ourselves in the acute period with the omegas, um, magnesium, and then the things that we can do longer term. Um, even progesterone for women and our hyperbaric oxygen, oxygen therapies. Are you familiar? Do you know anything about ozone, IV ozone? Uh, I actually have heard of it, but I'm not familiar with it specifically for TBI, but I I would be happy to learn. Okay. There's, I'm just curious. We do use it in our clinic for a lot of chronic illness and um, especially in terms of supporting mitochondria to kind of regroup and regain and rebuild. And so of course that's necessary and um, extended TBI, even acute TBI, we, we use it. Um, but I know it's not a very conventional therapy, so it's not typically done, but we've talked about all the different things, including exercise and mental health. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about with traumatic brain injury and brain health? Yeah, I I think number one thing is setting expectations for yourself, right? If you have to be patient with yourself, you have to work with a physician or person that's been trained in traumatic brain injury, because there are a lot of pop-up shops claiming to know everything about concussion. So you have to be careful, and do your research and basically go to some, because, and again, not all neurologists are also trained in traumatic brain injury. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. kind of know what to do with you in the ICU or in it, if you come in with a stroke or whatever, but then when you like out, um, it's just the, the fallout and these type of lifestyle stuff is better managed with someone who has the the knowledge how to manage that mild traumatic brain injury. The other thing is, you know, there are a lot of alternative treatments we talked about, you know, that also you have to be under the care of someone to make sure you're not overdosing on even common vitamins. You can, it can, certain things can be toxic, you know, especially fat soluble vitamins like vitamin D and E. So you have to do your levels, make sure you're not going overboard. Another thing I want to mention is like choline, right? That's, anti-inflammatory and antioxidant, uh, basically that helps. That's what makes up the cellular lipid bilayer of lots of brain cells. So a supplemental with choline, or it's naturally in a lot of foods like eggs. Creatine um, has shown it could improve basically cognition and behavior. 
during the initial acute phase of TBI. Um, curcumin, everybody loves turmeric, right? If curcumin's mm-hmm. the active form in turmeric, it's some some evidence of improved uh, motor and learning performance, uh, cognition, and reduced cerebral edema in like animal models. Then there's been a lot of like uh, talk with glutathione, right? Glutathione, um, basically, you were just talking about ozone therapy, how it reduces reactive, um, basically oxygen sort of species. We want to decrease the fallout from the inflammation, which is then basically what damages the cells around it, Mm -hmm. right? We have talked also in research a lot about ketogenic diet or things like seizures and and in general, even in Alzheimer's and brain health. Um, Lipoic acid, we also talked about magnesium, melatonin, sleep regulation, all the fat-soluble vitamins because the brain is mostly fat, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Also zinc, basically zinc shows positive effects in severe closed head injuries. We talked about progesterone. And, you know, it's a steroid hormone, but it has neuroprotective effects on injured brain cells. So that's actually all in a nutshell. Um, but you definitely need to be under the care of someone who understands and can see which one you would benefit from. One point we really should not miss making here is that concussions can be cumulative, right? Yes, definitely. So that yeah. if you have one, then it's really important not to get another and especially not to get another too soon. Right. So when they, we call it like sometimes you can have subconcussive hits if you go back to early, but more, you know, the more concussions you have, and it all depends on how young you were, what was your baseline uh, function at that time? Did you properly heal or did you just go keep going back in the game and giving yourself more and more um, injuries, right? We have some challenges, especially with sports, young people in sports who are trying to like achieve and get to the collegiate level and then to the the pro level, you know, of trying to hide their injuries. And you really have to think about it in a longer term fashion. And to the sports, I guess, organization credits, there's a lot of um, new adjustments, you know, um, done in no head on tackle and heading the ball and soccer and things like that. And uh, certain things in hockey as well to try to protect the player. But you also have to understand that this is the rest of your life. Like you're not going to be playing uh, football or field hockey when you're 50 or 60 or 70, when you want to have some quality of life. That can get into, especially in the pro levels, the CTE, the chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Is that right? Yeah. It's a very hot topic for, for people basically it's a pathological diagnosis. So you should never go trust anyone who gives you a diagnosis of CT because unless they harvest your brain and take the brain cells and put it under a microscope, they cannot make a, a diagnosis. They can make a functional diagnosis by saying, okay, a lot of your symptoms line up like uh, memory loss, you know, mood disre- dysregulation or um, anger issues or um, constant headaches or you know, so those type of things over the long term can cumulate and say you probably have um, longer term damage and then can be supported by like fMRI or like targeted neuropsychological testing. But okay. in general, this is a pathological diagnosis made only after someone passes away. And one last intervention, you know, this was kind of going to be a TBI month for our podcast because our next show is going to be Kyla Pierce, who is representing the Love Your Brain Foundation and the Love Your Brain six-week yoga intervention for TBI. So yoga, you know, the traditional word yoga is a Sanskrit for unite, for bringing the, the body and the mind together. And that's one way to really address TBI and address head injuries is by healing your body through your mind and healing your mind through your body. So by uniting them, we, we have a stronger, you know, we, we can make an ally out of our own system. That's amazing. And I know you mentioned that briefly, and I would love an introduction to your next speaker. Um, I think we uh, are aligned in a lot of the things that we try to help people with, but I, I would be very interested to see how they've come up with this type of, um, protocol, especially because there's a lot of patients that have uh, yes. problems with balance. Yes. <laughs> and you need a certain amount of balance in yoga. So perhaps it's, they work on the balance, you know, first strengthening that and then going into the poses. So yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I'm happy to do that introduction. That's what this world is all about is bringing our bringing each other together so that, you know, we're just stronger together. So I yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I 
just really love to be part of what you're doing here, you know, bringing all of this really good um, information to people. Now we're in a, a sort of a very sort of like information overload age. Yeah, absolutely. We kind of boil it down um, to the experts and people who've actually studied things as opposed mm-hmm. to put just videos on TikTok and try to be, you know, the <laughs> self-proclaimed um, <laughs> experts about things. Mm-hmm. This film myths and try to set people straight, you know, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And that's why we have you on Shay. So we are so happy and so honored to have you here. Like, you know, just going back to your bio, the things you've done and the things, you know, are just incredible. And thank you so much for sharing everything with us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And thank you to our listeners um, for listening in today with Dr. Shay Dada. We've got lots of ways to continue this conversation through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can get more information from us and about us at our website, centerforhealingneurology.com. And you can find Dr. Dada at her clinic at NYU Langone Hospital in Long Island, which is New York. Um, please be sure to share this show with your friends. We welcome your rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. And feel free to send topic requests to podcast at centerforhealingneurology.com. We love that you've joined us today to discuss how to make our whole world medicine. We rise or fall together, and we're committed to doing what we can to make as many of us as healthy as possible. And this takes all of us, including you. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Party Fish Media acknowledges that it operates and records on indigenous Duwamish and Puget Sound Coast Salish land that is still home to the Duwamish tribe. This land is stolen in violation of the Point Elliott Treaty of 1855. We are committed to uplifting the name of these lands and community members from these nations who reside alongside us. For more information on this land, its people, or ways you can help, visit duwamishtribe.org or realrentduwamish.org.